0: As the kids head out, um, just again a reminder, men, November 16th uh, through the 18th, uh, we are going to be heading to Cedar Lake. We have uh, put together a whole block of tickets. Last year we had about 25 guys go. What an incredible time uh, it is uh, for the men's retreat. We want you to sign up for that. Uh, from a caterer's point of view, some of the greatest food you will eat is uh, at the event. So, even if you just want to come for some food, come and be a part of that. Of course, uh, sign up uh, in your friendship registry, talk to Scott, and uh, make sure you sign up for that. Uh, who uh, was a part of the barn bash last week? Raise your hand if you were a part of that. How many of you were a part of the square dancing part of that? That was one of the highlights, you scaredy cats. I know that there was about 100 or 120 of you out there square dancing, so I'd ask that you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. For you that don't know about what passage that is, that's a church discipline passage, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Just kidding. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Some of you are finally getting That it was the only joke I had this morning, so you better live with it. Romans chapter 1. And we've been in a series out of the first chapter of Romans. And if you haven't been with us uh, for the last couple of months, we have been looking at truths from this great chapter of one of the greatest books in the Bible. In fact, in Romans 1, we've broken this incredible chapter up into three sections. The good, which we're a part of right now, the bad, and the ugly. Now, we'll be finishing up the good for all you optimists out there. We'll be finishing up the good next week. And then in verses 18 through 23, we're going to spend about a month of time talking about the bad, the wrath of God, and the important truths that we are to pull from that part of Romans 1. Now, with the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, we're going to be looking at what I would like to call three spiritual uh, marks of spiritual maturity. And in this, we will see what Paul calls all of us to be a part of. So let's look to our text this morning in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses, uh, let's see here, 14 through 16. I'm going to ask one of the guys in the sound with bring me up a piece of tape. This thing's flying off my face quicker than I can hold it down. So stand with me as we read, and we'll get this contraption figured out as we go. This is what it says in Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, regarding his son, who as to the human nature was a descendant of David. And who through the Spirit of Holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Him and for His name's sake, we have received apostleship and grace to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Verse 9 says, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray now at last. By God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Here's our text for the morning. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Father God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you will bless our time. I pray that you will open our eyes You will open our hearts and our ears to hear what your word has to say to us this morning. Father, we pray that we would be a mature people for you, set apart for your work, set apart for your service, and set apart to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all in our presence. We love you and thank you for your word this morning and ask that you'd be with us in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. In our text today, Paul unveils three marks to spiritual maturity. Maturity is something that I think about very often in my life. When I was a teenager, probably the biggest complaint that I got as a young teenage boy was that I was immature. I found myself doing a lot of immature things. And it seemed that many would come and say to me and ask me the question, Are you ever going Grow up? Is it ever going to click with you? Are you ever going to finally put away those childish things and and become an adult? This word maturity is an important word. Webster defines maturity as the state or quality of being fully grown or developed. Within the psychological world, it's used to indicate how a person responds to circumstances or an environment in the appropriate manner. Often this implies that maturity is a response that is reasoned or learned rather than impulsive. If you've been around for any amount of time and heard some of my teenage stories and some of my stories that I have as a child, you will know that I was very impulsive as a child. Anytime anybody would say, I dare you, before they even finished the dare, I was going to do what they wanted me to. And you know that based on a lot of the stories that I've shared, most of those impulses led to trouble and punishment by my parents. Many times I would go and make immature responses to the life around me. And I remember at one point in senior year of high school, after continuing to get into more and more trouble, getting myself into things that I shouldn't have been because of immature responses, I went to my dad and I said, Dad... People keep saying, Tim, are you you ever going to grow up? And I said, Dad, I'm not sure how to grow up. I'm not sure what I need to do to make sure that I am mature. I want people to look at me as an adult. I want people to see me as an individual who's got some wisdom, who's got some insight, who knows how to deal with situations in the proper way. And I said, Dad, I need help because I don't know how to do it. And the God-fearing Father that I have, a man that loves me with all his life, sat down and began to systematically mentor me to be the man that I am today. And it took years. In fact, I'll even be honest with you this morning. There are times where my immature spirit, that child in me, still comes out and gets me into trouble from time to time. Just ask the elders at the elder meetings. Every once in a while, just take that joke and make sure I rile some of my older elders just a little bit more, and then I'll hear from Ray or Al. Tim, that's enough. Let's stop there. Being the youngest by half of Ray and Al. It's very difficult many times to be as mature as they would like me to be. There's that immaturity coming out again. But when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to our faith in Christ, the Bible makes it clear. It's time to be mature. It's time to grow up. In fact, before we even get to our outline this morning, I want to do just a very quick jet tour through the Bible on this subject of maturity, very quickly. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, write this in your outlines. You're not going to have enough time as I move through these. Maturity is commanded for all of us as believers. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Next we know in Ephesians 4:11 through 13 that your elders and your leaders have the responsibility to equip you to become mature. Now our job isn't to uh, make sure you become mature, that's on you in your own walk with God. But we need to, if you will, set the table so that you can grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and that we all become mature. The role of us as as a church is to create an environment where this is, if you will, a, a nursery school and a preschool and an elementary school and high school in this process of growing people at different stages in their life to maturity. In fact, maturity, Paul says in Philippians three fifteen, uh, will be proven by your proper view of things. Paul says all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. You're not going to view uh, things in an immature way, Uh, I'm sorry, you wouldn't view things in a mature way that you would have when you were three or four. When my son and I look at a certain circumstance or a certain uh, thing going on in our lives, my son, who is immature because he's four and a half years of age, is going to look at that situation differently than I would. That is true for us as Christians as well. There should be things that we look at differently because we've walked with Christ for a longer amount of time. Maturity brings forth assurance of the faith. Colossians 4.12 Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings, for he is always wrestling in prayer. What's he praying for? That you may stand firm in in all the will of God, and that you'll be mature and fully assured. As you walk with the Lord and grow, your assurance of your faith will grow as you mature in your walk with God. Hebrews 5.14 tells us that maturity allows us to know the difference between good and evil. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good from evil. And finally, trials allow us to grow in our maturity. In James chapter one, as James talks about considering trials in, in an area in an attitude of joy, Paul, said, I'm sorry, uh, James says in James 1:4, that perseverance must finish its work. Why? So that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is what Paul is talking about this morning. And he's going to give us three questions on a very simple test, asking the question, are we spiritually mature? And in verses 14 through 16, he unveils three areas that we need to look at. Listen to what he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. What's Paul saying here? Number one, the first mark of spiritual maturity is that I am to be concerned about the people of the world. I need to be concerned about the people that live in this world. Paul begins this section by sharing a sign of real transformation. Now, normally in our lives, especially within our American culture, we as people live self-centered lives. It's all about us. It's all about what's going on in my calendar. It's all about what's going on in my family. And if we have everything going well in, my, in our lives and in, on our calendars, we'll say, okay, well, then I can think about someone else's problems or concerns. But what Paul is saying here, when he says, I am obligated in the NIV, what he's saying is is that because of my relationship with Christ, because of everything that has been shared in the first 13 verses of Romans 1, now I have a job to do. And now I am to be concerned about those around me. Paul uses the word obligated. This word is important. It's a Greek term that literally means to be in debt, to have a duty or an obligation. Now, it says that he's obligated to others. He's obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks. What that literally means is not that he owes them something per se, because first and foremost, he is a debtor or an obli- or has an obligation towards God and God alone. Why? All of what has been written in this great first chapter of Romans says because of God's grace and because of God's calling and God's gifting uh, of the Apostle Paul. Now he is obligated to go to the Greek and the non-Greek. And what he's saying is, is because God is concerned about people, because God loves people, because he is my master, because Jesus is the one whom I serve, I am now called to be obligated to the same things. Because God cares about people, I am to care about people. Because God loves people, I am to love people. Paul says, I'm obligated. Now, he doesn't just speak in this term of obligation just merely as the spiritual elements. But he's saying, I care about them. And this term, obligated, literally is an all-encompassing term. He cares about all facets of the life of the people that are in the world around him. He cares deeply about what's going on, their physical needs, their emotional well-being, as well as the spiritual Now Jesus commands us time and time again to look after the orphans and widows in their distress. In fact, the book of James says that religion that God finds faultless and pure is when we look after the widows and orphans in their distress and meet their needs. What Paul is saying is is that I am concerned about my world. Is that something you can say this morning? That I am concerned about the world that is around me. Now there's a couple facets to this concern. Number one, it is ever-present. This concern Concern needs to be ever present. This phrase you would not see in the uh, English Bible, your NIV English Bible, but is the phrase I am. Now you'd say, well, what do you pull from I am to show that it's ever present? I am is in the present tense, which means it is continually happening. What is continually happening? He is continually obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks alike. What he's saying is is that I'm not just obligated when something bad happens in the world around me. Meaning, I'm not just going to give to people in need when I hear about it on CNN or watch it on Fox News. I'm obligated all the time. I'm concerned about people. I just am not concerned about people when all is well with me, but I'm concerned about it at all times. Now, why would this be the case? Paul is basing this, as scholars share in their commentaries, Paul is basing this ongoing concern. He's mimicking it to the ongoing grace that has been shown in his life. Why do we show concern, love, and mercy to the world around us? Because we serve a God who continually, ongoing, is showing us grace and mercy and love and showering us with the blessings and the needs that we have that need to be met. He's taking care of those things. So what Paul is saying is, is based on what God has done for me, now I'm going to live a life of gratitude by showing the world around me the needs that they have can be taken care of through my life, through my concern. But sadly, so many times in our own lives, we miss out on that. We help when it's convenient. We help when when things are all good with us. Paul says it's ever-present. The next thing Paul says is that it can't be for the elite alone. It can't be for the elite alone. Paul says, I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks. Now what Paul is saying here is he's breaking it into categories of two sets of people that he's concerned about. Greeks during that day were the civilized people. They were the cultured people. They were the ones who were sophisticated. They were the ones who seemingly as a society and as a culture had everything put together. They were the ones that were making advancements in the area of technology and science and reading and arithmetic. These people were known for all that they were doing. It was all wonderful. Very similar to how many times we look at ourselves as Americans, pace trend trendsetters for the rest of the world. Now most of the Greeks were well-to-do. The Greek society was a very affluent society, just like us here in America, that even the poorest of Greeks would have been viewed as rich amongst even the whole Roman Empire. These people were known for their high level of status and who they were. In fact, the Greeks knew that and began to look at other cultures and other people as less than themselves. And they would say, well, you're not Greek. Greeks are the best. We have all going for us, and so we should be viewed at a higher level. In fact, the Greeks thought they were so elite that they said that the Greek language, the Greek customs, and the Greek culture were all the cultures, the customs, and languages of the gods. They'd say, "Well, of course you would. You would think that if you've got your own made-up gods, that you would think they would do the things the way you do them." Here's the funny thing: they thought everybody's gods spoke Greek, followed the Greek customs, and the Greek culture. So if they knew of an Asian God, they would say, Well, he doesn't speak the Angla- Asian language that you speak. He speaks Greek. That's the kind of thinking these Greeks had because they thought they had everything all put together. Paul says, I am obligated even to the elite people. Now, Paul knew this and understood it, but he goes on. He doesn't just say that Christianity is for the elite. A great theologian named Garth Brooks says, I've got friends in low places. Paul says, I am not just obligated to the Greeks, but he says I'm obligated to the non-Greeks. Who has an NAS Bible here this morning, a New American Standard Bible? What does your Bible say there? Just someone shout it out. Barbarians. That's the kind of translation I like. NIV kind of sugarcoats it. The reason why the NAS uses the term barbarians is because the Greek word there is uh, barbaros. Barbaros, which literally is a negative or derogatory statement that Paul is making. Now, he's not calling non-Greeks barbarians. He's using the common phrase or common name that is used for anybody who's not Greek. Now this word barbarian literally meant that you were one whose words were rough, crude, or harsh. It was spoken of people who were uncultured. It was spoken of people who lived in poor living conditions. These people were the lowest of low within the Greek society. Now notice what Paul says. He says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. How do we apply that this morning to our own lives? We need to understand something. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for the people that are put together. It's not just for the people who drive new cars. It's not just for people in uh, American suburbia. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the alcoholic who's living on the lower end of Wacker Drive in Chicago without a home but a cardboard box. It is about the family that's living with AIDS in Africa. It's about uh, the people that live in communist China and uh, North Korea. The lowest of lows. The people that we don't think very much of. Paul says, I am concerned not just about America. Now he's not saying that. I'm adding my translation to that. We're not just concerned about our country of wealth and affluence. But how about those who are lower than low? How about those that don't talk the way we do? Paul goes on. Notice what he says next, that our obligation, our concern should be for, uh, isn't just involving the elite alone, and it isn't about education. It isn't about education. Look what he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. Then he says both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul moves from the cultural to the educational. The word wise is the Greek word sophos. This word literally means the ability to use knowledge for correct behavior. It's a great definition for wisdom. Taking knowledge and applying it to your behavior. My desire in growing up wasn't that I'd become more book smart. I have. I've read a lot. I've done a lot. But my desire was to take knowledge and apply it to my actions. That's maturity. That's wisdom. But look at what happens. He says that this word wisdom also means one who has intelligence, one whose education was above the average. Paul is saying, I am obligated not only to those who are like me. Now understand this, Paul's natural inclination would have been the following, to go to the elite, to go to the educated. Why? Paul lived in a very uh, affluent family. But not only was he affluent in his Jewish family, but he was taught by the greatest of Jewish rabbis. So his goal, his desire, probably would have been just to hang out with the elite, educated individuals. And we see that God uses him in a powerful way to do that. He goes into the synagogues, he goes into the uh, places of debate and philosophy, and he debates the great Greek philosophers time and time again. He goes to the steps of the Aregopolis. I'm not saying that right, but uh, yes, thank you. And uh, one of the great known buildings in Greece. And what does he do? He challenges them. He sees all their gods and he says, yet you have a, uh, a insignia to this statue to the unknown God. And he begins to unveil Jesus Christ beginning all the way in the book of Isaiah and moving forward. This is the kind of debate that Paul loved. But Paul says, I can't just do that. I must go also to the unwise, to the unsophisticated. And look at what he shares. He shares in this term, he says, uh, the Greek word anoitos, which literally means unwise or foolish, but literally it means not to have a mind. This would uh, describe one who was not very intellectual. It should be one who lacked intelligence or who was uneducated. This word was used many times for people that had no schooling whatsoever. And here Paul says, my concern is for them as well. I care about them. What Paul is saying is is that whether they're educated or not, whether they're refined or not, I need to serve them. I need to be concerned about them. How does that work within our lives today? As Christians and as a church, let us never define who we are going to go and serve. Let us never define or put a picture in our our minds who we're going to be concerned about. Let us know that as long as they bear the image of Almighty God, no matter their background, no matter uh, their nationality or whatever, that we are going to be concerned about them. Because look at what Paul says next. He says that he's going to go to all ethnic groups. It's going to be for all ethnic groups. Paul says Greek and barbarians or non-Greeks. And then later in the text he says that it was for the Jew and then the Gentile. What Paul has said with these four subgroups is that the gospel and our concern in getting the gospel out and living for Christ should be shown to all men. To all men. No matter race, no matter uh, creed, no matter who they are, all men. Why? Because we must believe as God does that God is no respecter of persons. The great Bible scholar Vincent put it this way, Paul was to serve and was to be concerned about all men without distinction of nation, culture or creed. Paul was to be concerned about all of them. Paul owed his life to God and now he was going to serve God. Let us be reminded of a couple things this morning, what I've written down. Culture and intelligence and education do not qualify you for the gospel of grace. And being unrefined or uneducated or illiterate does not disqualify you from the gospel of grace. Why? Because there are no qualifications for grace the moment you start to say that grace is dependent on you or your education or your uh, social graces, then it no longer is grace anymore. We are nothing without God. We have nothing that God sits in and says, Oh, you got your merit badge. Good for you. Now I can love you. He doesn't say that. He says, in spite of your merit badges, because your righteous deeds are but filthy rags before me. Nobody qualifies for grace. Paul's a debtor to the Greek and barbarian because they don't qualify either. And yet he knew that grace had come to him like a wave upon wave of grace and love. And he says, you know what? I can't contain this in my own life, but I'm going to share it. With others, Well, what does that mean? Oh, that we'd be gripped with this reality of grace in our lives. What a difference it would make if we would dwell on this kind of idea of concern for the world around us. What might that do to us as a church in regards to any uh, closet ideas of racism? I know there are some here today who have ideas about other races that they'll never speak out. But in your heart you say, well, of course they would do that. They're black. Of course they would do that. They're Hispanic. Of course they would do that. They're Assyrian. Some of you understand what I mean by that. And we start to pick out. When I was a young kid, uh, Polish jokes were the funny thing. Always involved the Pope, Billy Graham, and a Polak, they would say. We need to be careful about racism. We need to be careful about ethnic slurring that we have, even though it may be funny. But beyond that Village Bible Church, we must be very careful about self-righteousness. Well, look at what I've done. We work like the military many times. We pay more honor to those who have more badges. We pay more honor to those who have more stars. You know what? Alls we are are slaves, servants to Christ Jesus. If the Apostle Paul could say, I am a bondservant to Jesus Christ, then who do we think we are to think we are anything greater? He was the greatest missionary, greatest apostle, and he says, but I am a doulos, a bondservant. I'm nothing. And so are we. So let us be concerned. Let us have the same concern that Jesus did when he wept over Jerusalem in their rebellion. The second thing we see this morning is that we must be committed to proclaiming the gospel to the world. I need to be committed to proclaiming the gospel to the world. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Now, Paul says, I am obligated. And if you were to just read that, you would sense that what Paul is saying in our English translation is Paul has a duty. But what Paul says in verse 15 nullifies that this duty would be something of a drudgery to him. What Paul is saying is, is yes, this is an obligation. This is a duty. This is my calling. But look at what he says in verse 15. I'm eager to do it. This word eager gives a picture of a passionate commitment, a desire, and a love. He says, I want to go do this. I'm called to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ, but I wouldn't want it any other way. Do you serve God with that kind of passion, with that kind of desire, where you sit there and say, Yes, I'm a bondservant. He's the Lord. I'm not. But let me tell you something. I don't want it any other way. I want to serve God. He says, I preach God with my whole heart earlier in the text. This is a guy who is devoted to giving his life to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what does it involve? There are a lot of people today who would say, I want to be committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to serve my God with my whole heart. But how do we do it? The first step is you need to know what part you play. You first need to understand and know the part that you play. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. He uses the term again, I am. Now, there's nothing of great significance from this terminology, I am, except for the following. Paul could have said, like he did earlier on, Rome, church in Rome, you're doing a great job. You are speaking great, uh, the grace and gospel of Jesus Christ, and in fact, it is reaching out to the uttermost parts of the Roman Empire. Praise God for that, and I thank God for that. Now, what Paul could have said is, in light of what you're doing, I don't have to do as much. Or maybe I'll just be the part of the apostle. Or I'll play the part of the preacher. And what that means is on Sunday, I'll tell you what to do. And on Monday through Saturday, I'm going to go back into my study and study a little longer. And you go out and do the work. That's not what Paul says. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel. What he's saying is, I want to be a part of it as much as you're a part of it. Sadly, in our lives today, there's a lot of preachers that will come in and preach great messages and they'll never, Monday through Friday or Saturday, never articulate with the same excitement and the same vigor and the same passion the gospel that they proclaim from a pulpit on Sunday morning. Let that never be true of me. And if you see that, you slap me in the face and say, Hey, you're missing the mark. Be gentle, though. Paul says, I know the part I play. I am eager. This isn't something I just teach and give someone else. This is something that I do, and I encourage others to be a part of it as well. But notice what he says next. He says, not only am I eager about it, and I know the part that I am to play, but he needs to know the place that he's going to serve. Paul knows what his job it is. It is to preach the gospel. Before you know the place that you are to serve, the question you must ask God is, how am I involved in this gospel that you have? I'm not Tim, and I'm not Ray or Al or Keith, Scott or Mario, so maybe I don't have the the gifts like that to preach and to, to teach or to lead in the area of eldering, but I'll tell you that is not the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ has many facets to it, and God says you're called to it. God says you're a part of it. So what part do you play? Do you use your hands in the way of the gospel, as John talked about in his testimony about the building? And building, if you were depending on me to build that building, sadly, you wouldn't be very happy with where your money is being spent. I don't have that giftedness or that talent. But we need that, don't we, to get out the gospel of Jesus Christ? Some of you have the gift of singing. Others, you would turn people away if you started to sing. But some of you, Bob and, and Pete and Marianne and the singers that were up here today, they have the gift of singing that draws people through the wonderful melodies and the words that are sung that draws people to God Himself. Others have the gift of, of working with children. I was talking yesterday to a, a young girl who was speaking of one of our Sunday school teachers, speaking praises about learning the Bible because they have a gifted Sunday school teacher who knows her place in the gospel ministry. I'm so thankful for Jim and Carol Carpenter. They have taught my oldest son, and my son still looks with great affection upon what he has learned by two individuals, a husband and wife, that are gifted in serving in the gospel of Jesus Christ by sharing with young children. How about the leaders that are out with the 60 kids on a youth retreat? I'll tell you, it takes a lot to work with teenagers. I pray for those who worked with me that they would still get the psychological treatment that they need even after all these years. But you know what? They're gone today. And they're not in our midst. Why? Because God has gifted them to serve in the gospel ministry to teenagers with all their dysfunction and all their loud music and all their funny slang terms. And they say, well, I don't know why God's called me to it. I ask myself that every Wednesday. But He has, and I'm gifted in that way to serve the gospel in that way. Others are behind the scenes. What part do you play? The next question you need to ask is where do I serve? What, what place do I serve? Paul says, I'm going to Rome. Paul had a vision of Rome. He wants to head to Rome. He wants to be a part of that great city. Why? Not so he can see the Colosseum and the great sites. He's there because he has a job to do. The question we have to ask is once we know our play, or our, uh, the people that we are to serve, the next question is, where am I to serve? What's your mission field this morning? Where do you serve God? Where are you articulating the gospel? There are a couple places that I have a heart for the gospel ministry. Of course, number one, it would be here in Sugar Grove. Because this is the area of my local church, because I'm involved in the elder team, I have a desire to see the Sugar Grove and surrounding area come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But there's another place, and that is the town in which I live. I have a heart for my hometown, Hinkley, Illinois. Now, to some of you, you may not think very, that that's very important. To me, there's about 2,500 people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one who grew up in that city, one who was educated in that city, I want to go back there just as Jesus wanted to go back to his hometown and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's another place, in my own workplace. I have a desire, I have a vision that any of my employees that come into my midst will will see two things. Number one, that they will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ presented clearly to them by me. Not by someone else, but by me. Number two, I want them to see the love of Christ by a Christian employer who is fair, who is kind, who is gentle, and who lives what he preaches. Three mission field. Now I haven't even included my own home. I haven't even included my extended family. There's many that we can have. But what are your top three areas that you have as your mission field? To students, it would be your school. To you that are working, it would be in your workplace. And the question you need to ask this morning is, do the people in those sphere of influences know that I'm a Christian? Do they know that I'm a Christian? Not that they know that you go to church or where you go to church. Many times we as Christians are a lot more Dr. Phil than we are the Apostle Paul. People come and they know that we've got sensitive hearts and they know that we've got kind words and they come to us and what we do is we put our arm around them. And we give them a little chicken soup for the soul. and We make them feel all warm and fuzzy inside and say, you know, yeah, God will work things out. Um, but, but that's it. Instead of saying as Paul does... For those that love Him, God will work all things out for the good. But we must come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do your workmates, do your schoolmates know that you serve God? Or do they see you as a nice church-going individual who goes to church like everybody else, but maybe has read a couple more books than they have? Or do they know whom you serve and why you serve and why you are called to your workplace, to your school, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Our commitment involves knowing those three things. Where I serve what I am to serve, and finally, the message I am to preach. Be very careful that we don't preach a watered-down message of the gospel. Paul says, I am preaching the gospel. What this means is Christ and Him crucified. Don't take out Jesus just to make it politically correct. When someone says, what should I do in my marriage? Before you say, hey, go and get counseling, first of all say, have you gotten right with Jesus Christ? Because you'll never be the husband or wife that you need to be until you bow the knee to the Lord. Lordship of Christ in your life. Well, I don't know what to do. I've done this or that. Before you say, well, go fix this and that, in the human standpoint, make sure that those workers, those co workers, and those students know that you need to go to God first because He will cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we ask for forgiveness. Be careful that we don't miss the mark when it comes to the message that we preach. The third and final thing that we see this morning is that the final mark that all Christians should have if we want to be mature is that I am to be confident in what the Gospel has promised. Paul says in the last two verses, he says, I'm concerned, I'm committed. And now he says, I'm confident. I am not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. We're going to fly through this and we'll maybe come back to it next week. Why would Paul have said that he was... Why would he even speak about being ashamed of the gospel? It seems odd that he would come in 16 verses into this great first chapter of Romans and use the term, I am not ashamed. Why would he be ashamed? I think he was telling the Romans something. He was articulating something that we as Americans in the year 2007 need to hear. There are four reasons that I can see why Paul may have fallen to the tendency of being ashamed and why he wanted to articulate. First of all, because of the moral condition of the day. We know that Nero was the emperor of Rome during that time, that he was a wicked and degenerate man, that Rome was a cesspool of sin and wicked living. Even though they thought they were all that as an empire, they were nothing but sin and party. Sounds like America today. And when Paul would preach the gospel, he was preaching something diametrically opposed to pleasure of life and pursuing the things of this world. So Paul says, I could be ashamed about that. This gospel is different than what everybody else is preaching. The second thing is, is Paul was a Jew. He was a Jew. And Jews during that time would have been a part of the non-Greek culture, the barbarians. They were viewed as a subhuman race. They were fit for nothing. They were to be despised, mistreated, and enslaved. And Paul goes out as a uh, person that is sharing about this Jewish Uh, God that he has that was the opinion of Roman people during that time that this was a Jewish faith not a faith for anyone else but next the gospel that Paul preached was unbelievable it was unbelievable think about this for a moment the Savior that Paul was preaching was a male member of the despised Jewish race he said he was the Savior man he claimed to be the Son of God and even claimed to be God himself yet he also claimed to be a man His death was different than any other man, even though he died on a Roman cross. The symbol of shame in his dying, Paul would tell these Romans, that not only did he die, in fact, he didn't die for himself, but he died for the sins of the world. And not only did he die, but he rose from the grave uh, three days after being put in there. And to many, they would sit there and they'd look at Paul, Mr. Educated, Mr. Refined, and they'd say, Have you lost your mind? I can't believe this to be true. There are people here today who have gone and shared the good news of Jesus Christ, and your co workers have looked at you and they've said, Are you crazy? This is bizarre teaching. Finally, everywhere Paul went preaching the cross, he was ridiculed, cast out, imprisoned, or treated unfairly or harshly. So, why would Paul say, I'm not ashamed? There are three things that the go- or four things that the gospel promises. First of all, the gospel promises to be powerful. Look at what it says in verse sixteen. It says that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. Why was Paul not ashamed? Because he had seen the power of Almighty God work through the gospel. He was going on his merry way on the road to Damascus and the gospel hit him straight in the face in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, the way I used to live is not how I live now because of one encounter, one small, short, incredible encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am a changed man. Paul saw the changes of people, no doubt that had come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as an educated individual, as one who was refined in all the social graces, he knew he had never seen that kind of change in the life of any philosopher, in the life of anyone who had attained to higher learning. No book had done that, but the gospel of Jesus Christ had changed lives. Do you believe that the gospel of God is powerful? Powerful to change not only your life, but the world around you? We're ashamed because we think that the gospel we have is just another thing on the shelf of the world's cultures of a way to get to heaven. Let me tell you something. And this may not be very politically correct. The gospel is the only way. It is the best way. It is supreme from any other ways. And if you say that that's uh, that's, uh, too um, prideful, well, too bad because that's what God says. It's the only way. It's the only way, and it's the best way that humans can ever come to any kind of resolve in their life that deals with the sin that they have. It is the power of God. But what does it lead to? The next thing we see is that it accomplishes God's purposes. It's the power of God for salvation. This word salvation is literally the Greek word soteria, why we call the study of salvation soteriology. This word literally means to deliver, to rescue. Seneca, a famous philosopher and contemporary of Paul, taught that the Greeks were in need of rescuing and deliverance. And what he used to say was that man was in need of a hand to lift us up. I love God's sense of humor through the prophet Isaiah, as if he was answering rhetorically to Seneca. In Isaiah 50, verse 2, he says, Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength? to rescue you. In Isaiah 59, 1, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. What is the goal of this gospel? The goal of the gospel is not to improve man. The goal of the gospel is not to make people feel better. The, the, The role of the gospel is not to pat you on the back and say, well done. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to take wicked, depraved sinners and to save them. That's the goal. That's the role. And sadly, in our churches today, we talk about felt needs instead of about the only need that sinners are in need of grace. And if we miss that, then we've stopped preaching the gospel. People ask me all the time, well, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of that guy? If you're not talking about the cross, if you're not talking about sin, if you're not talking about God being the holy God who came to earth to die on the cross for my sin, that I might by faith trust Him, then I'll tell you where I stand with that preacher. He's not preaching the gospel. If it's all about marriages, if it's all about money, it's all, those are all important things. All of them are like 150 on the list to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us never forget that the gospel is about saving souls. But what is it to be given to? It's to be given plentifully. Plentifully. It says, for all or everyone who believes. Who is this given to? It's given to anyone who by faith bows, the, uh, bows their knee to Christ and says, God, You are my Savior. God, I can't do it without You, and I will serve You as my Lord. Anyone who does that, whether Greek or non-Greek, whether educated or uneducated, will, will come upon the same grace that the Apostle Paul did. I'm blown away by the amount of people that Paul in his earthly life led to the Lord. But even more than that, I'm blown away by the millions upon millions of people who by reading Romans would have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Did Paul ever fathom the amount of people that would come to the gospel because of this letter? Would Paul have ever thought that based on Romans one seventeen, that an Augustinian monk in the 15th century would have read that named Martin Luther and changed the view of justification by faith alone? Would Paul have ever have known that? And yet the gospel is there to change lives for those who will believe. Finally, it goes according to God's plan. The gospel is not something that God has worked up, nor is it something that God put together on the fly, but it's according to his plan. He says it was first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. This is not an idea of priority, but this is an idea of order. God describes and gives the gospel, first of all, to the Jewish nation, the Israelites, in the books of Genesis through Malachi. He declares who he is and his covenant relationship with Israel. But then he opens the floodgates and he says, this is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. And it's given as a plan. So what does that mean? Let me close with this. And I know we've gone late on time and I'll close our time with a word of prayer in a moment here. But let me explain this very quickly. We need to be committed. We need to be concerned, but finally we need to be confident. And a lot of us aren't confident about the gospel of Jesus Christ because we think we're on par with everybody else. We're not. As I said, the gospel is the greatest thing known to man. Let's proclaim it with passion. The gospel isn't something that was just made up, but over thousands of years now, people have come to the same place that you have. They came to the saving realization that Jesus Christ is their Lord, and without Christ, you and I can do nothing. And when we begin to realize that... When we begin to understand that, then we will become committed to that gospel. And that's when we'll start opening our mouths. These are the signs of maturity that Paul is talking about. Let us attain them. Let us do all that we can. Paul says, not that I have been found perfected in these things, but I stretch, I strain forward to the goal that Christ has for me in the heavens. Let it be our prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father God, as we close our time this morning, we have worshipped you. We have praised your name because of your grace. And Lord, what a fitting welcome mat of this truth of grace that we've understood this morning. That we've understood that because of your grace, because of your mercy, now we have some maturing to do. Father, I pray that we would be a people that are concerned with those around us. That we would be ones that are known, that are out there to meet the needs of people who are in need. Second, Father, I pray that we would be committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would know our place and we would serve unapologetically in our workplaces, in our schools, and abroad. And finally, Father, I pray that we would be confident. Father, I pray this morning you would encourage the timid, those that are here in this place, even my own heart at times where I shun and I find myself pushing away Jesus because it's not the popular thing to do. Oh, Lord, that we would be confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would not be afraid to amen something that we amen on Sundays, that we would do it in our workplaces and in our schools. So, Father, I pray as we go from this place that you would continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ because without that, we will be nothing but immature little Christians who just babble and who know very little. But, Lord, that you would grow us so that we would be able to teach others and entrust this gospel to another generation. We pray now for your blessing on our fellowship for the time of learning in Sunday school as we go from this place. We love you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray all things. Amen.